this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and my guest today is Dale Cockrell, author of Everybody's Doing It, Sex, Music, and Dance in New York, 1840 to 1917. Dr. Cockrell asked the question, where do we find American music? His answer is in the brothels, dance halls, concert saloons, and cabarets of 19th century New York. Weaving together information from police reports and governmental investigations, Cockrell has found a rich source of information about the life of working-class people in urban America, and in the process has uncovered a network of musicians and spaces that nurtured American popular culture. Welcome, Dr. Cockrell. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Kirsten. I'm delighted to be here. Couldn't be happier. Well, this is just a great book, very much, I think, designed for a trade audience as well as a scholarly audience. It's certainly um, uh, very well researched, of course, and grounded in scholarship, but just incredibly readable and about a really fascinating topic. So um, I'm excited to, to talk about it today. And I was wondering, as I read it, how did you get interested in the topic of this book? Um. Well, I was writing a book on blackface minstrelsy, early blackface minstrelsy, uh, in the 1990s, the early 1990s. And as I was exploring that topic, I was surprised to find that almost all of the early figures in that fraught genre uh, were somehow involved in New York Tenderloin. Uh, Some of the leading figures were marrying madams or engaged with them or being bailed out of jail or living them, or running brothels, or engaged in many ways with that kind of life, with the New York Tenderloin life. And I thought, well, it kind of makes some sense in a way, because the music that's associated with blackface clearly came out of dance halls. It came out of lower class uh, meeting places where there had to be music and dance and sex. And... um, so it kind of made some sense that the music that was in those places was simply transferred to the stage and it became the sound of the fiddle band, really, the string band. Um, so I stored that away, went, huh, it's really curious. And I knew enough about jazz in the 19-teens and the development in New Orleans and so forth to know that it also seemed to come out of a tenderloin, as a tenderloin ethos. So... 
I, I was, well, here's two points in time. Is there any connection between these? And I knew nothing about that connection between. So after finishing that book and moving on to several other things, about, oh, seven or eight years ago, I recycled that and started to do some research just on prostitution in the United States and was shocked and amazed, really, that that prostitution was a, a thriving and quite huge industry in 19th century America, continued well up into the 20th century before it kind of wasn't as big an industry in the 1920s and later. And I knew if there was prostitution, that there was likely dance. And if there was dance, there were likely live music. There were live musicians making the music for the dance to turn the till of the house, keep everybody excited and ready for the business. So that's how I got started on it, going, oh, wow, huge industry, needing music needing live musicians, needing a certain kind of music. I mean, we're not talking dirges here. Um, so it started me thinking, well, maybe the reason that American popular music tends to be excited, dance-based, get up and go. That So that got me thinking, well, maybe the reason that American popular music is the way it is, that is an excited dance-based music it tends to be, um, is because there were all of these thousands probably of musicians making a kind of music that was determined by their employment opportunities. So that was really, that's a long-winded talk, but that's really how I got started on this. And as I say, it took seven or eight years of research before I could finally feel comfortable sitting down and writing the book. I, I think that is one of the interesting things about this book is that, particularly at the beginning, you give these evocative descriptions of what was going on in these spaces, these in these brothels and concert saloons and so forth. And you really talk about it as a space of joy. And that is not something I think scholars do well with. Like, we're great at oppression, but we're not so great at the idea that music and dance brings joy. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, before we, we get into other things, just sort of this idea of this music being um, being happy, being joyful, being in a place that we might think of as being sort of degrading, but also a space of real happiness, I guess. Oh, that's a good question and a tough one. And in the background there, here I am writing this book on prostitution, and it is about music that comes out of this joyful, and I'm going, what am I doing? That this is a business that necessarily degrades and oppresses women. Um, it's not a happy part of, of our social dynamic then or now, but yet the deep irony of course, is that a kind of joyful music serves well the business of the house, if you can just stand back and be neutral about it. And so I would tell myself, okay, what's going on in the forefront here is not a happy scene, and I try to address that early on in the book. But over in the corner are these musicians making this music that's in their best interest. I mean, by 
making this joyful, exciting music. They're tip jars, Phil. They have a job, and um, they must take some interest in the kind of music they're making over there because they have to look around. They have to see what the dancers are doing. The dancers feed them, give them ideas. They change the music to make the dance more evocative and more exciting. So it turns out that by serving the needs of the house, that is sex, they're writing and performing a kind of music that that um, is exciting and is joyful. And, you know, do you hear in my voice this kind of, oh, this is so difficult, so fraught. But by the end of the book, I'm also wanting to say that there's something human about that, too. Um, that many people have had the experience of thinking that their dance partner was the most engaging, attractive person in the world during the process of the dance. And so I try to focus on that, acknowledging that there's a, a nasty and dirty picture in which this music is embedded. Um, but also to say that, ironically, there's something of beauty that came out of this too. One of the reasons that we might have, a, I mean, I, you, I think you articulated really well, sort of the, the difficulties of, of articulating a space of joy within a larger uh, network and, and system that is definitely oppressive to most of the people that are involved in that, in that space. But um, I think another reason it might be difficult is the kinds of sources that we have to talk about the working class and working class culture and what was happening in these spaces that are not talked about and in the more easily accessible print media, for instance. You know, I think that's where a lot of 19th century scholarship gets done is in books and journals and newspapers and this sort of explosion of print media that is, is happening in that period. And most of that is completely hidden from those essentially middle class sort of um, sources. And um, and the sources that you have found, first of all, I've never seen anyone use those sources, except maybe Jillian Roger does a little bit of it, uh, does use those kinds of sources for her work on variety, I think. And that is you're looking at these um moralistic reformers, you're looking at government investigations into prostitution. I mean, and and these are people that, of course, see what see what they're um, talking about in a very negative light. I mean, they're breaking the law They're what they're doing is immoral. And so you're having to really find trying to read against the archive, essentially. So you talk a little bit about that at the beginning of the book, sort of the um, difficulties of that. And I'd love you to expand a little bit more about how in your research, you do, you're always, uh, most of your research, or much of it that I know of anyway, is centered in that working class space where we don't have good archival references for, and you really have to dig for it. So can you talk a little bit about that sort of challenge in your work? Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Most of my career has been devoted to trying to figure out what's happening in a classed and raced environment. It's almost inevitably raced as well. Um, and it, it's interesting to me, just as you say, because, I mean, the people who control the printed press are middle class. And if we rely simply upon what they've written, we're going to get a perspective on music history, on history that comes from a middle class perspective. It's inevitably going to be the case. 
And so it, 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 I must say it, it sort of irks me sometimes when somebody says, oh, there's a song. Let's go find the sheet music. So we go pull up the sheet music, which is designed to be sold at 25 cents to probably somebody in a parlor somewhere, and it'll be propped up on the piano to have a nice little lithograph in the front of it, and not realize that that piece of sheet music, it's the way that a publisher can make some money. But what happens to that music is it inevitably goes into an oral tradition. And Stephen Foster writes, Oh, Susanna, it gets published. Uh, he makes some money off the publication of it. But who reads the sheet music to O Susanna today? I mean, we all know that in the oral tradition um, because it gets picked up by ordinary people. And in particular, it gets picked up by people who can't afford to buy the sheet music in the first place. So it becomes a vital part of our historical consciousness because people of the lower class have adopted it somewhat as their own. And then you stop and think about it. Most of American popular music is a product of lower class. I, you just start to mention it. The string bands, we, we've talked a bit about that already, but jazz, blues, rock and roll, on and on and on. Rap, hip-hop is always an expression of people who... Uh, it's an expression of people for whom making music is free. and it's. Um, it's possible to express your sense of freedom in the process of making music. You don't have to buy the paint. You don't have to find a publisher. All you've got to do is sing or beat on a drum or find a cheap guitar somewhere. So, and, and that's our music, is that it is an expression of these people. So with that as a kind of foreground, I've found most of my career, I've been wanting to discover in some way the lives of these people who were making this vital music. And just as you say, one of the few ways to do it is to look for the point of condensation, of patronization. And that is sometimes reporters will go down to, re to report on these poor, unfortunate people there on the Lower East Side of New York, and they'll write an account of it. And almost inevitably, the music or the dance is in there somewhere. So there's a little bit of evidence. Well, we need to suppress these people. So let's have an official body designated, a commission. And so let's go down and find out what these degenerates are doing down there. So a little bit more evidence shows up. Or we're going to throw these people in jail. So let's write a police column in the newspaper. So a little bit more evidence shows up. Uh, it, it does mean that you're constantly looking for a needle in a haystack to find to build a case for this. But you put enough of it together and you start to get a sense of actually what is going on down there. And one of the joys in writing this book was discovering some of these sources that clearly had never been looked at for the music-making opportunities down there. And I think starting to get a flavor of what's happening um, and what the music is sounding like and why people are taking joy and feeling a sense of freedom in making this music. You bring up something I think really important about this sheet music and and uh, you know what what are we actually seeing in the um, resources that we normally look to for this period? So sheet music, and then at the end of the nineteenth century, you've got piano rolls, you've got early recordings, that sort of thing. And are they really uh, accurate representations of how this music was 
was performed. So I, you know, I'm wondering, I guess sort of, I have two questions about that. One is, I think you've shown clearly, at least in some spaces, it's completely, it's not accurate, but I wonder how much do you think the middle-class consumer of this kind of cleaned up versions of ragtime songs and um, the, and maybe earlier than that minstrelsy or whatever, how much do you think they were aware of the difference between what they were consuming and what people in the working class were making? I mean, do you, you, you see what I'm saying? I'm just yeah. wondering it, how much of their, how much of a knowledge gap was there between the classes? Well, there almost inevitably had to be. I mean, music is in the air. There are quite a few accounts in the book of middle-class people just passing down the street and hearing, well, there's a, an epilogue, right, to the uh, a prologue to the book where I talk about somebody ma- uh, walking down the street and hearing the mud gutter band. I love that term, mud gutter. So you're you're going to hear it. It's in the air wherever you are. But I think also the very fact that they felt that they need to suppress it was evidence that they knew about it. And you wouldn't be forming a commission if there wasn't a life down there that somehow frightened you. And, um, of course, you're forming the commission maybe to suppress prostitution, but you realize, as, as I did, that if there's prostitution, there's dancing, and if there's dancing, there's alleged music, a term that somebody used. Um, and you need to stop all of that. It was interesting to me that uh, the Committee of 14, maybe we'll talk about that here in a moment, but one of the techniques that they used to suppress prostitution was to deny permission to dance halls to have a piano. And if you could keep the, if you could keep the music out, then there wouldn't be any dancing. And if there's no dancing, there's not an incentive toward prostitution. So, you, you look at the body of evidence enough, and it's pretty clear that people knew the power of, of this music and the power of the lives that people were living uh, there in the Lower East Side on the dark side of town. Well, I definitely want to talk about the Committee of 14, but before we get to sort of the later part of the book, maybe we can um, talk for a moment about, I, I mean, I sort of, when reading it, I sort of thought the book was um, almost divided into two halves. You sort of have an earlier period before the cabarets, maybe, and um, before some of the commissions that um, investigated prostitution. And then you have a later period, uh, which um, is really about where ragtime is really developing and at, there at the sort of turn of the century period. So if we could uh, maybe talk a little bit about the beginnings of your book, um, in the 1840s, 50s, um, you know, sort of the civil and into the Civil War, where you have this cast of really colorful characters who are reformers. Um, they are exposing um, this underclass, underbelly of New York, um, sometimes through their own publications, other times um, in other ways. And they seem to me as colorful as the people that they were uh, battling against. Um, I think Anthony Comstock is, of course, the most famous of them. But I'd love mm-hmm. you to tell our audience a bit about George Washington Dixon, who yeah. was not only you know, part of this um, trying to bust the hypocrisy of what was going on in New York, but also as a musician. Yeah, George Washington Dixon, one of, surely one of the most colorful figures in American music, per, perhaps even in American history. Um, 
George Washington Dixon was known to me when I started this book on blackface minstrelsy as the guy who sang um, one of the early minstrel tunes, uh, which we know today as Turkey in the Straw. Um, it was called Zip Coon at that point. And, and so I figured, well, that was just who he was. I didn't know much more about that. And I remember reading um, a newspaper when I was at the American Antiquarian Society researching that book. And it said that George Washington Dixon had been picked up and jailed. I can't remember exactly what it was, but he had slandered somebody in one of his newspapers. And I went, George Washington Dixon, is that my guy? Uh, is, is he a newspaper editor? What's that about? So I started digging and found out that George Washington Dixon, in addition to being a fine singer, actually, and kind of giving us this touchstone piece in the early development of, of blackface minstrelsy, is in some ways the person who gives us the American Yellow Press as well. So he started publishing newspapers in which he was exposing the philandering qualities of the upper and middle class. Ministers, he'd, he'd go after them. Uh, Madame Restel, an abortionist in New York, became, became uh, one of the ones that he was, uh, he was after in particular. So, and so he's publishing this in, in newspapers, which tend not to be very long-lived. Um, and he, he gathers around him uh, a group of a group of other editors who kind of take the form and develop it even more, including one who establishes the National Police Gazette, and the National Police Gazette is a direct line to the National Enquirer in the 20th century. So, so there's this kind of part of this guy is uh, a total hypocrite. Uh, he's interested, I think, in selling newspapers as much as anything else. So here he is hanging out with prostitutes and bleeding brothels in New York. And at the same time, he's slamming them right and left in his newspapers, but writing accounts like this. That is, the, um, the brothel on certain, certain places, the women are lovely, it's quite clean, but don't go there because it's a brothel. So, um, sounds like the National Enquirer, doesn't it? Okay, so that becomes the, the way in which this, this information is passed on. And then he becomes even crazier. He decides to invade Mexico and liberate it at the end of the 1840s. Gathers an army in New York to march down to Mexico to liberate it. It turns out that there were probably about 28 that he enlisted to go, so he didn't make it. Um, but just... Uh, a wonderfully endearing and crazy guy who is giving us this crazy music, and it turns out also establishing a crazy part of American literary life as well. That pattern keeps getting picked up through the 19th century. There are other colorful reporters who are heading down to New York's underbelly, writing about it, basically telling you, Oh, these people have a lot of fun. Don't go down here. It's dirty and awful. Um, so embedding in this American culture, this fraught relationship with our, our attraction and our disgust with our underbelly, with our tenderloin, with 
the parts of New York we don't want to talk about, but we know they're there, and they're somewhat titillating. And I think that's also manifest in the music as well. Um, so he's one of my favorite people. I I wish there were enough there to do a full book on him, but I don't think there is. His, his life is just too... Uh, um, it's it, it's not... We just don't know enough about it. But thanks for asking about that. I love talking about Dixon. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about those spaces that Dixon is, I think... Um, serving as a publicist for in that great underhanded way of, or, you know, of saying, well, don't go there because it's really awesome. That's <laughs> but, right. Um, That's right. but um, over time uh, you see spaces starting, then they um, maybe they get closed down through various laws or changed because of the way the legal system is trying to control prostitution. And also, you know, the styles of music change, styles of dance change. Can you talk a little bit about, where, what are those spaces where you're finding this music? You know, what um, are, is it just the same space over and over again, relabeled, or do you see some? Um, are there real, uh, more substantial changes that you see over time? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, we need to put aside the notion that this is happening in a brothel. Brothels are relatively unimportant uh, when it comes to exploring the music of this period. Not totally, but but relatively so, in part because brothels more or less serve a middle-class clientele, or at least that was the idea. Now, there are very inexpensive brothels, but there tended not to be music. That was just pure business. Much more important are dives, uh, dance halls, concert saloons, uh, just the general saloon. because this is the place where music and drink and dance, these places where music, drink, and dance all came together. One of the, uh, just to give one example, uh, we think of saloons. Uh, there are actually two kinds of saloons in New York by the end of the 19th century. Uh, we think of the saloon in which you enter through from the street, you go straight in, there's a bar. That was very, very common. It was a space that was occupied only by men. So there would be a somebody running the bar, the bartender, and there would be a row of men out there drinking at the front of it. But there was another kind of bar that had a back room. And if you know New York architecture very much, it, it tends to be that there's row houses. There's a, a half basement underneath, which would be the dive, where you dove into the cellar. And then back behind would be an alley behind this row house. And so there's an entrance from the back as well as an entrance from the front. And if the bar, uh, the bar owner could get access to the back part of the building as well as access to the front, he could divide that into a back room where women could enter through the women's entrance at the back. Women, by coming in free, Uh, invited men to come to the back, back there. And it was in the back where the music was being made, not in the front. There was almost never music being made in the the saloon by itself. So it turns out that the back room saloon uh, plays a really important part in the development of my book, Uh, finding out about that place, finding out what's going there, getting past the mindset that a saloon is a saloon is a saloon, to know that there are different kinds of saloons, they serve different functions. 
Same thing with dance halls. Um, sometimes they were just dance halls. Sometimes they were very small. Especially in the Lower East Side of New York, they tended to be places that would pop up often in the cellars of townhouses, of brownstones they would be today. And then they would go away. Um, later on, especially after the turn into the 20th century, dance halls tended to get larger and larger. And some of the statistics in the book that surprised me was that 90% of young working class women in New York were readily often going to dance halls. So it was uh, an opportunity for them to get out and to see an exciting part of the world, but also an opportunity for musicians to provide the music for this horde of men and women who were seeking out places to dance in early New York. Um, so the, the geography of of the book is critically important. And by geography, I mean, sure, the parts of New York, but but also the buildings, uh, the places where this is going on are important to know because they determine the kind of music that's being made there and the kind of dance as well. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. One thing about at least some of the spaces that you're talking about is that um, this is where we can see... um, a, I guess you'd say a gay subculture, um, and a subculture of people who are gender nonconforming at this time, this is where they also can find, um, uh, you know, a relatively safe space. So there are male prostitutes. They talk about, um, what, what sounds like, you know, they talk about dives, um, where they're clearly gay people are in these dives and it sort of seems like the precursor to the gay bar in some ways. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, these aspects of sexuality and how that relates to what you're talking about as a part of working class culture and also part of this music and dance um, culture that you're talking about in the book. Yeah, that that was a surprise to me to, to come across evidence of that. Uh, George Chauncey and others have written on gay life in New York. Um, but as I was doing the research, especially in the 1890s, uh, it comes about that there's a vibrant gay life and it seems to be centered around music and dance. Um, a section of, there were kinds of bars that were called, or dance halls. There were kinds of concert halls, really, called slides. Um, and that's named after the most famous of them, which was the slide. And they were known in New York as the place where gay people went, where they gathered, where they drank together, where they danced and flirted and so forth. And there were a good number of them. Um, And there are some descriptions that I managed to find of the kind of dancing that's going on there. There was one commission, a New York State commission, uh, which they were trying to put down the whole business of, of vice in New York. But one of the investigative attorneys, one of the investigative agents that was brought in, made a statement. It's a little bit ambiguous, but 
he just got furious at this and says, people don't, people don't understand this. He said, when they use the word ragtime, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't realize that, essentially, he seemed to suggest, it's the gay people in New York who are dancing this dance, and they're teaching the rest of us about it, suggesting that ragtime has its racial aspect, but also had its sexual aspect from very early on. I mean, this is right at the beginning, when ragtime is just showing up in New York. Um, the book doesn't focus on that a lot. It's kind of throughout. Um, I've often wondered if Dixon wasn't gay, actually, um, because there was, a, there was a gay culture in New York in the 1830s and 40s as well, and he seems to fit into that pretty easily. So it's, it's just um, a kind of background melody that floats throughout the book, and sometimes it takes the front. But uh, in the 1890s and then 19 aughts and the 19-teens, there's more evidence about what's going on just because the resources are richer than they were. But how interesting to think that maybe ragtime is first dance in New York by, by gay people. Well, that um, account in your book of that made me really think about how people talk about ragtime. That's something that I am dealing with in my research as well. And um, I think most people, um, and certainly I've thought about the, the rhetoric around ragtime as being highly racialized. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of it's too wild, it's uncontrollable, it's primitive, you know, um, all these sort of adjectives that, um, that we usually think of being as being really raced. Um, but now I'm wondering, as I read your book, if, if really what we should be thinking about it, maybe in addition to that, is this is, this is also a condemnation of uh, sexual practices that people are, you know, middle class people are upset about. Is mm-hmm. this, are we really reading um, a condemnation of working class life? You know, is that, yeah. what, is that the context in which we should be really thinking about this rhetoric around ragtime rather than something that is primarily around race? I've, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, furthermore, it's, it, it, it's more complicated, I think, when it, when it comes to matters of race, um, in the book in the 1880s, there are already, well, no, back up from the very beginning, these dance halls and so forth tended to be multiracial. And by the 1880s or so, there's a bar called Black and Tan in New York. It gives name to a whole genre of dance halls and bars still with us today. We can use that term and we know what it means. So once you, get, once you get below a middle-class sensibility and you get down into a, a working-class culture in New York, and I would dare say elsewhere as well, you'll find blacks and whites sharing their culture quite freely and quite easily. Um, and my first book on blackface minstrelsy documents that to some extent too. So yes, it's uh, we're not just condemning African Americans when we talk about ragtime in the 1890s or the early 20th century. We're talking about a whole way of life in which blacks and whites trade musical licks and dance licks, and probably even bodies. Um, but but 
celebrate a, a, a kind of life that is illegal and underground and therefore bad. Um, and it's therefore bad simply because we've got the power to say that that's the case. But yet they leave us with this great music. So there's the irony again. Um, the other thing that struck me as reading that part of the book was um, the extent to which the vaudeville acts um, that are exploiting this music and dance must have really been really, I think for back of a better way to describe it, cleaning up this music and this dance. I was kept thinking of Vernon and Irene Castle, yeah. who are this, you know, yeah. the first famous ballroom dancers. And they were dancing things like the turkey trot and mm-hmm. um, all these famous ragtime dances, but in beautiful clothes mm-hmm. and, and without the sort of suggestive, um, or the extent of the suggestive body movements that you describe in your book. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of transition from from the working class culture that you're talking about to what people are seeing on the stage and hearing in their recordings, you know, you know, what is James Reese Europe, for instance, doing Mm -hmm. between in, in the music that he uses to accompany the castles Mm -hmm. and perhaps where that was coming from sort of that. I'd love to hear more about your thoughts about that transition. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's hard to deny the vitality of this music that's being made down there. And, the appropriation of that music by middle class musicians and sensibilities is, is a long there's a long history of that in American music. And that's what you're talking about here. So you have ragtime come along, and before long we've got uh, a middle class opportunity to hear ragtime. We've got piano rolls, so you can put it on. We've got recordings, uh, which you can hear in your nice living room and even learn to dance to. Or Uh, we can turn it into a concert music, which is what we've done by and large. So there's a whole spectrum of available ways to express this music. And in the process of making it cleaner, the higher up you go on the social scale. So what Vernon and Irene Castle were doing, something that had been going on for some time, but it really, really comes to a fore in the 20th century, the early 20th century, uh, I think the development of ragtime is absolutely critical. People are still getting down to ragtime in these dirty dance halls and dives. Uh, but at the same time, people have started to take it unto themselves and enjoy it, even as a middle class uh, uh, dance phenomenon. I think that's common. You know, we, we, we realize that these people are onto something down there, so let's take it and kind of clean it up. So rock and roll is a perfect example of what happened there. Um, you got a lot of the information on what was going on in the latter part, uh, or I'd say the turn of the 20th century, from an organization called the Committee of 14, oh, yeah. um, which was just one of many um, groups mm-hmm. that investigated vice in New York. I wonder if you could talk... Um, a little bit about that committee, sort of placing it in the context of of this larger sort of investigative um, impulse, and, and then talk uh, and what sort of uh, resources they left behind that you then yeah. exploited for this book. Um, well, there was a, a committee that was called a committee of fifteen, uh, established right at the beginning of, in New York. There was a fear um, 
there's some substance to it, but there was a fear of what was called white slavery. And the fear was that uh, young white women were being abducted and, um, and forced into a life of prostitution. And there were some stories, there were some investigations, and sure enough, there was some of this going on. It eventually leads in 1910 to the, to the Mann Act, uh, which means that you may not transport minors across state lines for illicit purposes. Um, and it's a law that's still being applied and used today. Um, but there was a commission of, of respectable not even respectable, wealthy and upper-class New Yorkers. Fourteen of them gathered together and called themselves the Committee of Fourteen. And that they, if the police, which were corrupt, they thought, uh, weren't going to do the job, then we're going to do the job. And they had the resources. I mean, John D. Rockefeller is one of them. Uh, J.P. Morgan is one of them. So people with deep pockets... Uh, went after Vice in New York. And um, the way they did it was that they established, they had an administrative structure. And the administrative structure was to hire investigative agents, detectives, and send them underground to find out what is going on down in these disgusting places, the Lower East Side and other places in New York, and report back. And from there, uh, the reports then would be read, they would be looked at, the uh, compelling evidence would be used, sometimes the compelling evidence would be taken to court, and you could, um, you could bring these people before the civil authorities and justice would be rendered. Um, but sometimes you just publish it and let the world know how disgusting all this music, dance, and sex was. It was in New York. Well, the rep- there was a report that was published in, first of all, 1910, and then a later one in 1913, of what the Committee of 14 was finding. And you can get on eBay, and you can get a copy of it. Um, and it's quite interesting. It's got redacted agent reports in it. Um, and I read through it, first of all, and was surprised at the amount of music that was being documented even in these redacted agent reports. And descriptions of the dance, sometimes even the names of the musicians. So, whoa, you know, this is, here's some real solid evidence here. And then the question was, well, if they, if um, these agents were writing these reports and passing them on to the administration, wonder what happened to those reports. And I did some sleuthing and discovered that the New York Public Library, the Archives Division of the New York Public Library, has all of the papers of the Committee 14. And to say that it has all of the papers means that it has about 40 bankers' boxes of materials. Not all of that's agent reports, but uh, my estimate was that there were about 100,000 agent reports that were generated by the Committee of 14 that are to, to be found today in the New York Public Library, about 10 linear feet. And that's stuff that's often written by hand. An agent who could be black, white, male, female, Jewish, Gentile, Catholic, you know, a whole span of people because these people are going into into places throughout Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens as well. 
So they would go into these places. They may hit five, ten a night. They get paid pretty well to do it. They would write up a report, pass it on to the to the head man the next day, do it again the next night. They would sometimes be given directions where to go and what they need to do. So it turns out it's an invaluable archive of what's going on in underbelly New York. And as I read through them, I read through them only up through 1917. It took me two months to do that. Um, and I'm skimming a lot of them because not all of them deal with music, but uh, a lot of them did deal with the culture, with the music and the dance that's going on in that period. So the last chapter in the book is really designed somewhat as the climax, but also the closure. So I have maybe better evidence of what's happening than I have anywhere else. So I can speak with a bit more authority about what's going on. But at the same time, I can also show why this life closed down, why it ended. And the Committee of 14 is critical in that. By 1917, the end of 1970, beginning of World War I for Americans, this life is over. The one that started in the 1830s is gone. Uh, musicians lose their jobs. The dance halls are shut down. The brothels are shut down. Prostitution as an illegal public venture in New York becomes an illegal private venture. Um, and it's the Committee of 14 that's critical in, in that development, too. So the Committee of 14, it turns out to me, I had no idea it was going to happen, but provided me both with the best evidence, but also a way to close the book and say, it's the end of an era here. Um, it's the end of, and it's the beginning of jazz. 1917 jazz comes to New York and becomes something quite different from that on. But if you can imagine my excitement as a scholar starting to read through these things and go, oh my God, oh my God. I remember sending it out to colleagues saying, can you believe this? And they went, no, I can't believe this. So thank you for asking about it. Well, I, I, it was exciting to read about it, actually, and I can imagine how it felt to, to realize no. what you had found there, because uh, the information that you got out of those reports is, is just really fascinating and a place that um, a musicologist would not necessarily go to That's first. Right. So That's I'm right. excited that you have, have opened our eyes to, to that collection, but also to this, um, you know, you're, you're one of a number of scholars of the working class that have really found that those for musicologists and for art that this sort of that sort of space in terms of uh, you know that that's a place or a type of manuscript or a type of archival um, remnant that would be saved by libraries because it has this governmental or quasi-governmental official um, valence about it and and it's that's hard to find <laughs> so. Um, so it's it it was exciting to yeah, I can imagine. And, and if I can and if I can make a pitch to the musicologists out there looking for a job, there were um, in the nineteen teens at least forty American cities, perhaps as many as a hundred, who commissioned studies of vice in their cities, and um, at least forty of them had reports that were written up. Uh, I've read most of them. Some of them are quite rich. Some of them are kind of dull, don't have too much in there. But this isn't just New York's story. This is a story that every city in the United States in this period has a similar story. 
And I have no idea what the archival resources are for that. So I kind of pitch to people out there going, it's in New York. It may also be in your city too. Uh, you know, at the end of the book, I, I talk about my hometown, Paducah, Kentucky, which hired the same guy who was doing the, the study in New York and Chicago to come to Paducah, little old Paducah, 23,000 people at the time, do a study of prostitution in New York. And when I was growing up, there was one brothel at 808 Washington Street. Us teenage boys used to drive past and honk our horns um, and be titillated by what was going on inside as if we knew. And But um, in 1917, Paducah, there were 66 places of pro- public prostitution in the city. Just to give some idea of the extent of, of what was going on and the opportunities for music making and dancing across the nation, north, south, east, west, wherever. Well, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it is important that, you know, it, it makes sense to talk about New York as the first study, mm-hmm. but, you know, obviously there's Chicago, there's LA, there's, you know, places mm-hmm. in Texas. And as, as you say, even small places like Paducah, where there's so much left to be learned as we mm-hmm. go from kind of the the central city it's so important for musical culture in America and see uh, it's easy to and and your book doesn't do this of course but I think it is easy for musicologists to get complacent that New York that's is right. a stand-in for everything and um, uh, clearly that's not true and I, I think um, it will be exciting I hope uh, I hope more people start looking at those resources to see what they can find about um, other places in the United States and and um, how this all resonates in other places. When I when I started the project, I thought I was going to write a book about sex, music, and dance in the United States. Um, and I was talking to my agent about that, and she said, well, why don't you just do it on New York? Uh, you know, people are interested in New York. You've got resources. And I remember a huge weight kind of lifted from my shoulders when she said that. And I went, oh, now there's a book I can write. Uh, to try to do it for the whole country was just so daunting at the time. But I started out thinking I was going to do it all. Uh, I leave that to somebody else, though. Well, I think the only way to do that, surely, for anything nationwide, is to have all these geographically specific studies. And then, you know, a generation beyond, someone can look back at all the the specific studies and try to make some more That's general right. statements. But I, I agree with you. I don't think there's any way for that first person, that groundbreaking person as you are in this work, uh, to do the whole to do the whole country in any kind of um, meaningful way. So I'm yeah. glad that you made that decision. I think it's it, it well, really it certainly strengthens your book. I do hope I leave a lens through which people can look at the music of the time and wherever it happens to be to start to think, oh, what what I mean, could it be that what Cockrell's talking about in that book is applied to this topic as well, whatever it is? So that's my fondest hope, is that it becomes a lens through, through which music scholars and cultural historians just habitually look. Um, I think it's that important. Well, maybe we can, as a last question, um, uh, bring up what you're you're talking about um, with a specific example that, that I really wanted to talk to you about and it and it does suggest a new way of looking at something 
um, that uh, other people have started to look at, and that is the Marshall Hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, the the group it, that gathered in the Marshall Hotel, which was located um, in the West 50s um, in New York City, was the the center of black entertainment in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, these were uh, James Reese Europe basically ran a union and employment agency, the Clef Club, out of its dining room. This is where uh, Williamson Walker lived nearby. James uh, Weldon Johnson, his brother Rosamond, and Bob Cole, who were a songwriting team and uh, wrote musicals, they lived there. I mean, this it was it was where to go if you were an African American musician at that time, mm-hmm. an entertainer, really the center of Black entertainment, mm-hmm. and um, and it's really the precursor to the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. It's um, uh, it was generating the sort of similar kinds of, of really interesting ideas about art and about music and culture and race in the United States. But I always thought of this place as, you know, I thought it would be fun, but relatively dignified. I mean, this is where, you know, Burt Williams is hanging out there and James mm-hmm. Weldon Johnson, who later helps run the NAACP. I mean, these are, mm-hmm. and is an, an ambassador, but that is not how the committee of 14 draws it. Can you tell us, and, and thinking about what you were writing makes me think about the Marshall Hotel in a completely different light. So I'd love for you to talk about that one place as mm-hmm. a place that people are starting to research, but I think you're finding out about it and in a way that no one else I've seen has thought about it. Well, the committee of 14 made Marshall and his hotel a target from early on because it was a focal point, and not only for African-American intellectuals, musicians, artists, and so forth, but because it was uh, biracial. It was where white people and black people traded ideas, danced together, made the same music together, and so forth, and the committee of 14 thought that was an abomination. So they early on make it a a specific target just because of its importance, as you point out. So there's a lot of of intelligence that's gathered in those reports about what is going on in the Marshall Hotel. And, you know, some some of it uh, is probably not appropriate even for podcast, uh, but the descriptions of the things that are going on there are just appalling at least shocking. Uh, And uh, somebody needs to do some kind of assessment, I think, of those records. But it does point out that the Marshall Hotel was a place where intellectuals gathered together. Uh, Du Bois was there. Um, But it was also a rollicking place. Uh, I mean, uh, it it was New York's underbelly as well as places down on the Lower East Side. It's also interesting to me what the Committee of 14 did with the Marshall Hotel. There is documentation in those papers where the guy who was heading up the Committee of 14 at the time, writing letters to Marshall, and in the end, forced Marshall to segregate his hotel. So one floor became for white people and one floor became the dining room floor one floor became for black people. And it's interesting to me that that kind of sets the model for how New York becomes segregated after that time. I mean, you think of the Cotton Club or the Apollo Theater, where the races are there, but are segregated or divided. 
So the committee of 14 really kind of sets the model through the through their interactions with the Marshall Hotel for what New York becomes. And it's a, you know, that's a tragedy we're still trying to overcome. Um, these people were more important than we've ever estimated, I think, in the history of American music. Well, I wish I could run right out and, and read all those records. This is I, I was really regretting the pandemic when I when I read that. I thought I just want to get in, get on an airplane and and fly back to, to New York to read that because I, I just uh, found that fascinating and I think you're right. It's it's um I think we're only beginning to understand the amount of interracial exchange mm-hmm. in music and dance in New York at that time period. And, mm-hmm. and as you point out um, how it, how that ends. And um, I think we might, th- I think that sometimes we um, scholars are think about post world war one, New York, and it's the amount of um, segregation as also happening in pre world war one, New sure. York. And what I think you're showing is that that wasn't the case. That's and, that's really important for us to sort of grapple with and figure out. That's true. Um, so I think we're running out of time. I hate to end this. It's such a fantastic book. And um, I hope that many people will um, uh, hear this podcast and go read it because it's, it's a fascinating read. And um, I wonder, what are you going to follow up this, uh, this book with? What are you working on now? Oh boy. I mean, I'm exhausted, Kristen. So uh, but anyway, I'm spending a lot of time with my cameras and enjoying that. Um, I do have a small project, which I had just agreed to yesterday. Um, I, I spent part of my early academic career in South Africa and became interested in the musical life there and discovered, among other things, that African musicians in the early 1930s were listening to Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family. There were Dixie Records being imported there and being adopted by African musicians. I found that very curious. And there are recordings, actually, of them yodeling away like Jimmy Rogers did. And that by the 1960s and 70s, the Afrikaners were listening to and performing country music. So I've signed on to do a small article on on uh, country music in South Africa as part of this American musical culture feedback loop that... Um, that seems to be manifest in lots of parts of the world. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And I look forward to to reading that when it comes out. And thank you so much for joining me. Once again, this is Kristen Turner with the New Books in Music podcast, a part of the New Books Network. And I've been talking about Everybody's Doing It, Sex, Music and Dance in New York, 1840 to 1917, um, with its author, Dale Cockrell. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.